need one there on the back table. Grab one, take one, keep one, uh, give it away, do whatever you want. Grab one every week and give it away. You can't out give the Bibles that I will buy. I'm just telling you. So if you gave out 10 Bibles a week, I will buy 10 Bibles a week just for you to give out. So I mean it when I say take them and give them out. So you're going to need one, though, to go through today. To me, it's important that you have a Bible because I want you to take God's Word home with you when you leave out of here, not mine. And there's note sheets back there, so you can grab those if you need them. But for me, the biggest thing that you can take is God's Word. And maybe you can go tell somebody else, hey, this is what we studied today, or this is what I looked at today, or this is what God showed me today. Much rather that than this is what Dave said today. So we've been following the series of the story of God. So I'm going to bring you back up really quick. Um, We get this every week, but the good part about that is now you're learning the story Because you hear it every week. So in the beginning, God created everything, including mankind, uh, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve chose uh, their own kingdom rather than God's kingdom. They chose to do things their way rather than obey God, do things God's way. As a result, sin entered the world and death entered the world with sin. But God made a promise to Eve that there would be a child from her own body, one of her children, descendants, uh, a seed from woman that would bring salvation, would bring an end to death, would bring an end to this curse. And so from that point forward, that's in Genesis chapter 3, we've been following this story of this seed, watching him come throughout history. And that brought us through, um, you know, Cain and Abel. That brought us through Noah and a flood and how God guarded the seed through that. That brought us onto the other side into this time of what we call patriarchs or fathers or family where we had Abraham where God chose a, a man who would, who would build a family around this promise. Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then Jacob had 12 sons and those 12 sons all became the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And so then we have this nation of Israel now, which is really a family, but it's grown to such a big thing that it's a nation. They find themselves enslaved in Egypt, but God raises up Moses, and Moses goes and delivers them out of Egypt and brings them to a land that he promised to them beforehand. And they are now in this land uh, as a great people, but they have some problems. Excuse me, they have some problems. Number one, they're not obeying God consistently. And so sometimes they are obedient and sometimes they're not. And so God raises up these judges, uh, kind of like rulers, that help them stay faithful to God and at the same time rescue them from enemies. And that works for a while, but they'll fall and they'll come another ruler, a, a judge, and then they'll fall. And then they want, they get sick of the judges and they want what? King. Yeah, they want king. We want a king. Who, did they have a king? Yes, God. God was their king. But God says, okay, fine. You can have a king. Here's Saul. Well, Saul is a huge disappointment to them, even though he does some great things. So then God says, all right, David is my king for you. So he gives David his king. Remember, we're still following the hope of this seed of woman. So we're moved down to David. David is from the tribe of Judah. That's important because that's going to be, of all the 12 tribes, that's going to be the tribe that the seed continues through. So we looked at that. And we looked at a time of kings, and now we transitioned over in the past couple of weeks to a time of prophets. It's still, they're still kings, but now there are these prophets that speak for God alongside the kings. So if you got a Bible, turn to 2 Kings. And I said this before, I'll tell you again. 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, and Samuel as well, but we'll, we'll stick with those two. They, 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles pretty much parallel each other, and they're history books. 
much like the Gospels are. They tell a different uh, avenue of the same or different details of the same storyline of Israel's history. So First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles go basically from Saul all the way to the New Testament almost, all the way to 400 years before Christ, the detailing the history of Israel. So when we're talking about all of these prophets that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, they all kind of fit into that timeline. So some of them have their own book. Like next week, we'll look at Jonah. Has his own book. But he fits into the timeline that's in Second Kings or Chronicles. Okay? Cool. So you got a Bible. Second Kings. Today's theme, title, whatever you want to call it, is what you don't see. Uh, let me read you a couple of verses. Let's start in... Verse uh, 15 here, it says, when the servant of the man of God rose, chapter 6, verse 15, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army of horses and chariots was all around the city. And what the servant said, or excuse me, and the servant said, alas, my master, what are we going to do? And he said, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Let me pray. Lord say it every week. Your word's awesome. I just don't have a better word. It's really the truth. It blows my mind. It inspires awe. It is an incredible thing to have the words of the living God. And I thank you for that. And I thank you for trusting us with it. And I say us. I mean us. Not just me. It's your word, not mine. You don't need me. And I thank you that you use me, that you love me, but you don't need me. Lord, I thank you for the people in this room that are also holding your word. Help us all be faithful with it. Help us love the fact that you've entrusted us with it. Today, I know I'm standing here holding a microphone, Lord, but it's your voice, not mine. You say what you want to say from your word. Teach me, too. I'm a student. ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, Thursday, did y'all see the UFO? Did everybody see the UFO on Thursday that flew over? Did y'all want to see this? Yeah, it was like, you, yeah, I know y'all saw it because I saw your post. I saw it too. I'm standing on a football field and we're all like, you can look on, if you follow social media, you can look on social media, it's everywhere. But we were sitting on a football field and I'm like, what is that? What is that? Like, I, and I, if you don't know, I coach football, help coach football J, er, at high school down the street. So I'm coaching JV game and they're playing right in front of me and I look up and I'm like, what is that? And then everybody's starting to, what is that? And then we're all, what is that? And you see the phones come up and everybody starts videoing it or whatever. Uh, what was it? Yeah, SpaceX. It was Elon Musk up to his games again out in California. He'd launched a rocket in California, but you could see it plain as day. I mean, it was wild looking coming up through the sky. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, probably my favorite movie when I was really young was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And some of y'all have no idea what that is, and others of you probably do. I loved that movie. I thought it was so crazy. Uh, I remember learning to play that little jingle on everything, like a you know keyboard and trumpet and guitar and all that stuff. Uh, I remember laying out at night looking up at the stars in Georgia uh, and thinking, what else is out there? I mean, I was raised in church, so, so I trusted the Lord. But at the same time, I'm thinking, what does that look like? What, is it, what does it look like? What's out there? Uh, movies, books, shows, people everywhere look up and wrestle with that same question. In this whole vast universe, are we alone? Um, funny thing is, why do we care? You ever notice that the animals don't care at all? 
You never see you never see any animals staring at the sky, wondering if they're alone or not. They don't even, don't even sweat it. But the truth is, I can answer the question: No, we are not alone, not even remotely alone. But the one that we should be seeking is not from another planet. He created the planets, all of them, created everything, and he is not alone. He, in and of himself, I'm talking about God, in and of himself is not alone. He is a a, a three-in-one God, which is impossible to get our brains around, but that's okay. I don't know how to create a universe either, so it's all right. But he is. He's also not alone because he's surrounded by angels that were created by him to serve him. And the Bible tells us there's countless millions, billions, I mean, uh, Probably impossible for us to get our brains around what's really there. So here's your kind of one thought to take with you if it's on the sheet. And we've got a sheet that's on there. If not, it's we need to sharpen our spiritual eyes to see the sovereign protection of God so that when battles come, we won't fear what our natural eyes see. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm preaching to myself today for real. Uh, So... Note as we go through this, by the way, all the references to seeing or not seeing. Look at verse 8, 2 Kings 6, verse 8. It says, once uh, when the king of Assyria. So when it's saying that, it's, it's not telling you we're in a necessarily, necessarily chronological order here. It's just telling you there was a point in time when this occurred. And we know because of the kings and the people involved here, it was probably the 800s B.C. So if you're wondering historically where we are, we're about 800 or so years before Christ. The king of Syria, that was Ben-Hadad II at the time. We know who he was. This is not a fantasy. These people existed. He was warring against Israel, and he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place uh, shall be my camp. So I'm going to camp over here in order to um, war against Israel. But the man of God, that would be Elijah, S-H, not Jah. We already talked about him. Now we're talking about Shah. If you want to know more about that, go back to last week. But the man of God, Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel. The king of Israel was Joram. So you have Joram as king of Israel, Elisha. All these people existed. This is history. Beware that you do not pass by this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved this king of Israel more than once or twice, repeatedly. God saving this king through this man tipping him off. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled. In other words, he's like, what is happening here because of this thing? And he called his servants and he said to them, will you not show me who is for the king of Israel? What's he, what's he thinks going on? What's he saying? Who's the spy? Yeah, who's the spy? There's a spy in my kingdom. Who's the spy? And one of the servants says, no, none. You ain't got any spies. My Lord, O King, but it's Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel. He tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. That means when nobody else hears. You know, have you ever, I remember this hit me. I still remember the day when I was a kid. I don't remember the sermon, but I remember the day. You ever been sitting in church and been in, in a sermon and heard the preacher preaching and think he's been tipped off about something because he's talking right to you? You know what I mean? Like he, I can guarantee you, as a preacher, that's probably never happened, as fre- or at least as frequently as you say it. It does. That's not the way that works. Um, but what's actually happening is the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart through the Word of God. 
Spirit of God is speaking to your heart through the Word of God. Elisha, nor, nor any preacher, there's no wizardry going on. There's no magic power going on here. Uh, Elijah is not some superhero wizard person. It's the Spirit of God who knows everything. It's the Spirit of God who sees everything you do in your bedroom. It's the Spirit of God who sees everything you do at work, hears everything you say at school or wherever you are. It's the Spirit of God who does all that thing, all those things. And the Spirit of God is the one talking to Elisha. And the truth is, by the way, if you've given your life to Christ, that same Spirit is in you. Is in you. Look at verse 13. And he said, so this is the king of Syria. He says, hey, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. And it was told to the king, well, Elisha, he's in Dothan. Now, Dothan is about 10 miles north of Samaria, which was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. If you want to know more about that, you can go back. We covered some of that in the past few weeks. Verse 14. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army. He's going to get one guy. Great army. And they came by night and they surrounded the city. So this is not a city like Phoenix, okay? FYI, this is a town. Uh, it would have been much easier to surround with an army than Phoenix would be. But, but to give you a picture, the, the point of noting that is to tell you how big this army is. This army is big enough to surround the entire city just to get the one guy. All right. And when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army of horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? Now, context tells us this is the city that's a bit sunk in the mountains, probably kind of like we are here, although the mountains wouldn't have been as high. So they can see on the mountaintops around the city here or on the sides of the mountains or whatever else, all of these chariots and all these horses. And this servant knows what's up. He knows they're there for them. Because why else would they be attacking Dothan? Go attack, you know, Samaria or something. He knows what they're there for. And the funny part to me, by the way, side note, is this army sneaks up, sneaks up at night to get this one guy. They can't catch the king because of this one guy. And so they're going to go for the one guy. They think they're going to sneak up on him. Which is just funny. It reminds me of Lazarus, by the way. If you don't know the story, you can go read it in your own time in the Gospels. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it's at that point that the Pharisees decide to kill Jesus and Lazarus too. That's always made me laugh. Like of all of the times to say, okay, we're going to kill him and we're going to kill Lazarus. He just raised him from the dead. Uh, anyway, look, what, look what's up here. Verse 16. So it says, he said, so Elisha says to his servant, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more, greater number than those who are with them. Increasing greater is what more means. Those, who are the those that he's talking about? There's nobody there. There's, I mean, there's the people in the little bitty town, but he surely isn't talking about them, right? Visibly, there's nobody there. Visibly, with your, your eyes, there's, there, there's nobody there, but they are not alone, just as we are not alone. I'm going to say it again. We need to have our spiritual eyes open to see him who is unseen before we put our physical eyes on what we do see. All right? But we need to have our spiritual eyes open to see him who is unseen before we look at those who are visible, whoever the those are. And the truth is here. We'll see who it is, but the truth is there's nobody to fear except God. God and God alone. That's the truth. And if you belong to him, 
It doesn't mean you should be afraid of him. It means that there's nothing you might fear that's greater than him. There's nothing that you might fear that's greater than him. I'll give you a few verses. You can just note them. They'll probably be on the screen. Psalm 56, verse 4. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Verse 11, the psalmist goes on. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 118.6, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews, let's jump to the New Testament. Hebrews 13.5, quoting that, the author says, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you in verse 5. So, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's a theme throughout the whole Bible over and over and over. Undoubtedly, Elisha's servant knew this kind of thing and undoubtedly had faith. He lived with this prophet. He was part of all of this espionage, quote unquote, of the prophet telling that where the king, the king don't go that. He knew the power of God in Elisha and all that. He would have known all that. No doubt he knew scriptures, but he's still terrified and he's still trapped and has no idea how they're going to get out of this. They're fully surrounded. It must finally be over. It must finally be done. Thanks, Elisha. <laughs> you know, appreciate that, bro. Appreciate the Bible verses right now. That's great. Thank you for pointing me to the Psalms. That's good stuff and all, you know. I don't need a Bible verse from off of the refrigerator. I don't need the meme of the week that everybody's circling and emailing and telling me I'm going to be blessed if I send to 500 people. I, I don't need that. This is real life now, Elisha. Those are real weapons. Those are real soldiers. Those are real horses. Those are real chariots. Those are real wheels. Uh, this, this is real life now, Elisha. I, now, I, I know that's not in the Word, but I feel like that's probably where this servant, that's where I'd be. Let's just say it. That's where I'd be. And then Elijah, I would imagine, a bit takes a deep sigh. <sighs> this is my opinion. But verse 17, and then he prayed and he said, Lord, now, by the way, prayed here. Let's, a little quick side note. Prayer doesn't always have to be on your face. It's great when it is, and there are times when it should be. But there's other times you can just talk. I believe this is one of those cases. I don't think Elisha got into some pose and executed some powerful moment. I think he just took a deep breath and said, Lord, open this kid's eyes. You know, look what he says. Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. It's as simple as it gets. No fancy phrases. No powerful, long, repeated prayer. Just, hey, open this, let this kid see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So they're intermixed, by the way, because they're on the hills and so are the, uh, the, the armies of, of Syria are on the hills. So they're not necessarily above them or below them. They're just all on the hills. So a mix amongst the chariots of men, there's these chariots of basically fire, in a sense, all mixed around in there. And the only real description we have here uh, of, of what they look like or what they were is that fire, chariots of fire, that he's describing them that way. And notice, by the way, that Elisha's prayer here, did not summon these angels. This is a key thing. Did not summon. These angels are not there as a result of prayer. They're seen as a result of prayer. The angels were already there. 
Why were they already there? I'll tell you why. Because this is God's plan. This is not Elisha's plan. And if it was Elisha's time to go, then it would be. But it's not, and he knows it. This is God's plan. So there's angels sitting there. Elisha asks God to grant that he see them. He doesn't demand that he does it. He doesn't cause some power, remove the blinder from your eye. He asks God, let him see. God could have said, nope. He just got to trust him. But he asked him to let him see. Let's stop and think about that for a minute. How often do you feel like angels are around you? I've been thinking about this this week. Now, I'm not trying to be prideful or say that I have an army walking around me or nothing like that. I'm not saying that, or you either. But how often do you stop and, and think you might have angels present around you? You personally. I know people walk into the guardian angel stuff, and I'm not going there, yes or no, either either which way, because the Bible doesn't fully go there, yes or no, either way. But clearly angels are involved in the lives of his people. Would you rather have a guardian angel or a hundred million of them? Know what I'm saying? Uh, Many places, many places the Bible talks about angels, and I would... No chance we'd have time to go through them all, but I'll just show you three or four. In the Old Testament, we had, we've looked at a lot of them. You had Jacob and his experience with the angels multiple times. Gideon, you have uh, Samson's parents, Balaam. Some of those arguably were the presence of God appearing as an angel. Some of them were angels. Uh, there's a bunch. In the New Testament, though, I love the way it starts. The whole New Testament basically begins with angels. Luke chapter 2. You know it well. We'll be talking about it in uh, a couple of months. Isn't that crazy? Luke chapter 2, verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. This is when Jesus is born in a manger. And an an angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were filled with great fear. Verse 13 says, And suddenly there was with that angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Angels everywhere filling the sky. Verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom... He, uh, with whom he's pleased. Now, where did they come from? You think they just flew in from Mars or something to join the one in the sky? They were there. They're there. They're just seen. Matthew 26, if we come all the way to the end of Jesus' life, when he's being arrested, in Matthew 26, verse 52, then Jesus said to him, to, to Peter and the others who were trying to defend him as he's being arrested. Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of eight angels, legions of thousands, 12,000 angels? And, and I want you to imagine something here. Based on what we're looking at with Elijah, and, and we could base it on a lot of other things, I would argue that they're there. I would argue that they're at the cross. I mean, think about that. Swords drawn. This is their Lord, their King, their Creator. He was their Lord before He was your Lord. Just saying. And and I believe they're at the cross, swords drawn. Say it, say it, just say it. You know, waiting while He went to the cross, unseen. Hebrews 1, verse 14 says, Are angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve? For the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. In other words, they're here by God to serve us through his, his will. Hebrews 13.1, one more. 
Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Some of you may know that verse. That's a pretty crazy one, and it's black and white as it can be. It's just saying that sometimes you might have done a kind deed. It might have been an angel. The angel didn't need the kind deed then. It was about you. It was about you. And one of the wilder places, this is in Daniel chapter 10. We'll actually talk about Daniel later, so we'll come back and hit some of this a little more detailed later. But, um, well, maybe, but either way, this right here is one of the most mind-blowing pieces of text in the Bible. I'm a huge freak on Daniel. Daniel's my favorite book, taught it a million times. Um, But this right here is something that blows me away all the time. Daniel chapter 10, verse 12, an angel comes to Daniel to answer a prayer of Daniel's wanting to understand a vision he's seen. And this angel in verse 12, it says, Then he, the angel, said to me, Daniel, Daniel talking, the angel says to him, Fear not, Daniel, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God. Your words have been heard, and I've come because of your words. So this doesn't tell you, but it's been 21 days. So Daniel has been praying and praying and praying for understanding for 21 days. No answer from God. And then this angel shows up and says, for 21 days while you've been praying, that the moment you ask, the answer's on the way. But it's been 21 days. And he explains, verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief priests, came to help me for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Now, if we're talking about real people, that's pretty impressive if an actual king held an angel back. But we're not. The language there is a reference to the powerful force, the spiritual force behind these pagan kings. Uh, that we're moving in. Michael being your uh, chief prince, or Michael, we would call an archangel. Same, same thing. Skipping to verse 14, he says, Now I've come to make you understand what will happen in the latter days. Verse 20. So skipping down. We'll, we'll, you can look at that in your own time. What we're looking at is the angels interacting. In verse 20, then he said, this angel says, after having explained some things to him, he says, Do you know why I've come to you? But now... I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against them except Michael, your prince. Not your prince in the terms of you personally. Michael is your own little private angel. But the nation of Israel. It's talking about Persia, Greece, and Israel. And he's saying that Michael is over your, your nation. So now there's some crazy stuff in there. I get it, and that might even be a bit mind-blowing, but I just read it out of the Word, okay? So, but it's a picture of this angelic warfare that's going on. If you don't think that's true, the Bible is full of discussion about that. It is, all right? What all of this makes clear, though, everything we've just read, is there's different levels of faith, okay? Not different levels of magical powers, not different levels of ability to do, you know, you know miracles and whatever. That's not the case. There's different levels of Faith in the sense that awareness, I would say, of God's presence. There's different levels in the awareness of God's presence. Clearly, our knowledge of him and our relationship with him is what empowers that awareness. The closer you get to him, the more you spend time with him, uh, the more you do those things, the more you act on your faith, especially if it's threatening to do so. The more you do that, the more you're aware of his presence. The more you, it's not, it is faith, but it's faith based on what you see, what you know, what you've grown to be moved by. Look at verse 18. 
says, And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Again, notice the Syrians still attack. So what does that tell you? They don't see. They don't see these things around them. They're not suddenly appearing to everybody. They just, the servant can see them all of a sudden. But these people don't see them. And notice that Elisha still prays and asks for help. He didn't just say, okay, do you, uh, watch, he didn't say to his servant, hey man, you see him all? Watch this, watch this. You know, he didn't do that. He still prayed when they came down. And he didn't pray, kill them all, Lord, go get them. Kill them, wipe them out. He, did, he didn't do that. He specifically made a request. And notice he prays to God, not to the angels. This is the danger of people who spend too much time with angels. He didn't say to the angels, hey, guys, man, get them, get them. You know, he doesn't ask the angels anything. He prays to God. And God responds, not the angels. In fact, there's no mention of any warrior angel here doing a thing except standing there, ready, should they be told to. They don't do anything. The fight still comes, and they do nothing. You need to get that in your head. The fight still comes, and they do nothing. But because they're there, it changes the whole way you approach the situation, right? Consider how prayer works here, too. It says, I love the language. It says, God acted in accordance with Elisha's prayer. <laughs> That's so awesome. Didn't grant his prayer. Like, okay, let me give you a gift, God, uh, Elisha. Okay, yes, I have waited out, and yes, I'll give you this. He also didn't obey Elisha. Name and claim it, Elisha, just... Throw the Lord out there and tell him what to do. Didn't do that either. He said he acted in accordance with He came up and said, good idea, I'm there with you. Good idea, Elisha, I'm there with you. Let's, let's do this. That's the kind of language. Man, could you imagine the creator of the universe saying that to you? <laughs> good idea, man. Good idea, girl. Let's do this. Elisha Asked for the contrast of what he asked for his servants. He asked for God. Let the servants see. Let the enemies be blind. Let the enemies be blind. And it's only in God's hands to do it. That word blindness is only used a couple of times in the whole Bible. It had been used one time before in Genesis 19. And we talked about it. Remember at Sodom and Gomorrah when the people are trying to get in the door to get these two angels and they're blinded? It's the same word for blindness uh, Sanborim, it means, it literally just means dazzling light. This is the idea that if you ever looked at a, been looking out, uh, or you ever been driving down the road at the right time of day and there's a car in front of you and the sun is hitting their back window just right and you're just like, oh, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. It is blinding light is the idea of what happened. And just like in Sodom, the member in Sodom, the men still tried to claw in the door, even though they can't hardly see. And the same thing is going on here. Even though they're blinded, they're still ready to take Elisha. They still want him. They're still looking for him blindly. Verse 19, Elisha said to them, this is not the way. 
This is not the city. This is funny because this is probably terrible to say, but this always reminds me of like Star Wars and the Jedi stuff. These are not the droids you're looking for. Sorry, that was my geek moment for a second. Okay, this is not the way. This is not the city. Follow me and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. Now, that's not a lie because Elisha was with them. So he's not lying to him. He said, I'll show you where the guy you're looking for is. And he walks with them. So he's not lying. He's just taking them to a different location. And when they get to Samaria, Elisha's still there. So there's no no lie. He just walked them right into the capital. Verse 20, as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, Oh, Lord, open the eyes of the men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw. And once again here, Elisha is asking God for sight. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Elisha, again, did not lie. He brought them right there to Samaria where they were. And there he is standing there with them. And just like with his servant, he prayed that their eyes here were opened again. But the army that they see is not the same army that Elisha's servant saw. This army that they see is the army of the capitals of Syria and the king of Samaria, I'm sorry, the armies of Israel, basically. This army is against them, not for them. You know, my, my point here is that sight for a man or woman of God reveals deliverance and and sight for an enemy of God reveals defeat. So that's the way it always works. Sight for for a man or woman of God reveals deliverance and sight for a man uh, or woman or enemy of God reveals defeat. Elisha had no power to open open anybody's eyes here. He prayed every time. He turned to God on this every time. Let's wipe, let's finish this up here really quickly. Look at verse 21. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father. Now he's calling him that because why wouldn't you at this point? He saved that king's life multiple times, remember? Um, Shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? Let me kill him. Let me kill him. Let me kill him. He's not asking for direction here, by the way. I mean, he's not asking for permission here. He's asking for direction. Let me kill them. I'm going to kill them. That's the way we're going to handle this. Uh, verse 22, Elisha answered, don't you, shall, don't, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those who have taken captive, uh, whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So we prepared for them a great feast. That's a banquet. It's a celebration. And when they'd eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master and the Syrians did not Come again on raids into the land of Israel. So Elisha responds with, how do you treat POWs when you catch them? You know, you just kill them. Why would you bring them captive if you're just going to kill them? And, and, and these guys, you didn't even capture. I walked them right into your, into your uh, castle, right in the door. So he sends them home. Uh, one thing's clear here, though. Without a doubt. Without a doubt, these guys would know that if they tried it again, they're facing a much higher power. Without a doubt. And another thing to remember here, by the way, this was not about Syria. This was not about Israel. This is about an overwhelming force against one man. But his, his God is a living God. His God is a powerful God. His God is an active God. His God is involved, not just spun the world and took off. His God is there. His God is all-powerful to deliver. And nobody died. Nobody died. No country was conquered. 
Nobody was enslaved. Nobody's taken captive. Everybody, even the enemies, all of them here are, are delivered. This moment is not about people or armies. This is about the Lord of Elijah and what or who is around that Lord's people when they're faithfully serving him. That's what this is about. Does it mean nothing bad will ever happen? No. If God permitted his own son to suffer and die, don't be misled. Don't be misled here. Jesus noted that, as I said before, there were angels that that were at the ready for him, legions of them at the ready. But he didn't call on them because there was a bigger plan. There was a bigger plan. Just because God is greater than all of our troubles, just because God is greater than all the troubles in this world, doesn't mean we won't experience them. I don't know how many times to repeat that. Just because God is greater than all of our struggles doesn't mean we won't experience them. But it does mean that there's a purpose in it. It does mean there's a plan in it. It does mean that nothing can take us from his plan or his purpose if we're in him. And maybe you're looking for that purpose in suffering. I don't know. Maybe you're looking for that kind of protection. Listen, it starts with repentance. That's the gospel. It starts with repentance. It starts by saying, I know who I am and I recognize who you are. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a failure. I know I make mistakes. Nobody got to tell me that. I know it. I own it. I'm sorry. It's my. It's me. I need to change. I want my life to change. I want to belong to you. I recognize who you are. You died on a cross. You rose from the dead. I can't explain that. I can't even get my brain around it, but I believe it to be true, and I trust it, and I want you to have my life. If you can do that, you don't need me to walk you through a prayer. Just tell him. Just tell him, and then come tell me because we want to pray. But that being said... In this moment, listen, in this moment, Elisha didn't suffer at all. There's one last key point here that's really important. Elisha didn't suffer at all. In fact, his enemies were humiliated. This may sound like this great act of mercy, and in some degree it is, but it's, think about this now. They're humiliated by grace. They're humiliated by grace. What do I mean? Well, it's actually in the Word. Two verses really quick. Love your enemies. Matthew 5, verse 43 Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your enemies, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Romans 12, Paul, having that in mind, I think, wrote in verse 19, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God for it's written, vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. Who took captive the army of Syria in that moment? That was God's capture. That was God's capture, not that king. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Think about it. Josh has been in the military. Some of you guys have. Could you imagine being captured by an enemy force and they spread out a banquet for you? And watch you. Yeah, you've been in the military too. I see you smiling, John. And and they spread out a banquet for you. It's, oh, sit your guns down. You're fine. Enjoy. Get a good meal in there. Oh, you want some more? Here's some more on your plate. Have a safe trip, fellas. What would that do for you? You know what I'm saying? Humiliated in a sense by grace. Let me close with this. Uh, John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. Uh, and this is a quote from part of his story. It says this, John Patton was a missionary in New Hebrides Islands. One night, hostile natives surrounded the mission station, intent on burning them out and killing them. 
Patton and his wife prayed during that terror-filled night that God would deliver them. When daylight came, they were amazed to see that their attackers had left. A full year later, the chief of the tribe was converted to Christ. Remembering what had happened that night, Patton asked the chief what had kept him from burning down the house and killing him. The chief relied in surprise. Well, who were all the men that were with you? Patton knew no men were present. But the chief said he was afraid to attack because he'd seen hundreds and hundreds of big men in shining garments with swords. They seemed to circle the mission station so that the natives were afraid to attack. Still today. Still today. Stand up with me if you don't mind. We're going to do one more song and take a minute to reflect on what the word says, not on what I said. Take a minute to worship for a second. You know, just take a minute to pause and think about this. Take a minute to respond. If you want to come talk to me, come on, man. We, I would love for you to do that before you leave. But if you want to pray, we'll pray right now. Um, you want to get baptized, let us know. You want to be part of the church, let us know. Uh, let me pray. Lord, as as I go over this story, God, I get struck again. I've read it numerous times, obviously, but just struck again. And I think what struck me the most this time is imagining that there were armies of angels around the cross. Not understanding, but ready to act in a second. And I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not trying to put words into your word. I, I don't know. But, I, but I'm keenly aware that that was likely the case, Lord, and, and, and that you still allowed death to come. But thank you so much. Thank you so much because I only have the hope of life because of that. Thank you for taking my sin onto that cross, Lord. Thank you for conquering a grave I had no chance to beat. And Lord, I cannot even imagine how many moments in my horrible, wretched life that you've had angels protect me. And I would have never known it. God, thank you for that. You are such a good God. Help us worship and love you well. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.